You're listening to the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast. Here are a few messages from the forum before we start the show. Registration to our 32nd annual conference, Facing Forward, is now open. Our three-day flagship event, the annual conference, is our premier learning opportunity at the cutting edge of a diversity, equity, and inclusion landscape. Register today to take advantage of early bird rates with discounts on registration of up to $140 off regular pricing. Learn more about the conference, the conference theme, and the conference learning pillars at forumworkplaceinclusion.org. The Forum Annual Conference is SHRM and HRCI eligible. With that, I'd like to say thank you to all of our listeners and subscribers. Your engagement with our podcast supports our growth and helps us reach new listeners. If you like what you're hearing on the Forum Podcast, please consider writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. If you've already written a review, thank you. And please consider sharing our podcast with a friend, family member, or colleague. Word of mouth from our audience is the best way the forum grows. So thank you very much for listening and sharing. Thanks again and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this very special episode of the Forum on Workplace Inclusion podcast with Andreas Tapia of Cohen Ferry. I'm Ben Rue, Program Coordinator here at the Forum on Workplace Inclusion. As you know, uh, Andreas presented a phenomenal webinar for us last month entitled Culture Clash, Latino Culture, Identity, and Corporate Culture Be Reconciled, where Andreas took us into being Latino in corporate America to help us develop solutions to the Latino and corporate America culture clash. The webinar was a huge success and inspired a lot of great questions and conversations. Andreas has graciously agreed to answer some of the, those questions that we weren't able to answer in the webinar. So without, without further ado, I'm just going to hop on in. Um, first of all, thank you so much for doing this, Andreas. It's always a pleasure to speak with you and to have you share your wealth of knowledge with us. <laughs> Oh, my pleasure, man. I'm looking forward to this uh, bonus track, if you will. Yes, there were a lot of great questions, um, and a lot of great conversation. At, at times, it was a little bit hard for me to keep up with all of them. So I'm so glad we can get a lot of these answered for um, our listeners. So I'm going to just hop on in with the first one. That's how do you think we can move the needle on representation of Latinos and POC, the people of color, in leadership roles in corporate America? based on your slide on increasing on the increasing employee pool coming out of college, the leadership representation is not pacing the same way. In other words, why do you think that is that leadership representation is not moving at the same pace as college graduates in slash increase employee pool in corporate America? Yes, uh, that's a great question. And it requires a systemic answer uh, and a comprehensive answer. You know, at Corn Ferry, we really think about diversity and inclusion um, to not only go together in terms of, you know, you got to have the mix there, that's diversity, but how well is that mix working, which is the inclusion piece. And, um, and in order to manage inclusion, you have to address behavioral inclusion and structural inclusion. So when we look at Latino talent and the fact that there is more Latino coming out of colleges, more Latino talent coming into entry level, but we clearly see a ceiling above, above which you know the Latino representation drops in, in a dramatic way. And so we have to look behaviorally what's going on in organizations and structurally. So behaviorally, yes, there's, there is conscious biases about and against Latinos, it's very real. There's unconscious biases that by definition, people don't even are aware that they have it, but they do have a detrimental effect on how Latinos are viewed in terms of the performance and, 
and how they communicate or even how they look or where they come from. And the main uh, webinar that I did sort of explored that particular culture clash. So we have to work with leaders and managers and hiring managers and recruiters on their behavioral inclusion and their better ability to uh, eliminate their conscious biases, you know, be aware of their unconscious biases, learn more about Latino reality, cultural archetypes that are very present for many Latinos, uh, not all, but for many of them, and the ways in which the organizational behavioral expectations might clash with Latino cultural norms. So that's a behavior part, and a lot of it is addressed through training and awareness and communication and all that. But there's a structural part, and the structural part is where is it that embedded into the systems themselves are those biases, right? So it's one thing to deal with interpersonal bias. I have it, you have it, we all have it. Let me uh, awaken to that. But it's another thing when the system itself is codified into that in terms of the role portraits, the sex pro, uh, profiles, competency behavior expectations, uh, the conversation around fits and who fits and who doesn't. Those get written down, they're bullets inside role descriptions and inside even behavior-based interview protocols. And so we have to unearth the biases that are in there because even when an individual says, okay, I got these unconscious biases, I'm tuned into them, but then they're following the, the, the paper in front of them that has these parameters about what to look for and whatnot, and that where structurally uh, there might be some biases uh, toward uh, Latino uh, experiences. So uh, to answer the person's question, yeah, it's individual leaders, individual managers, recruiters, and it's also working with human resources to look at their systems where they might be biased. And the final thing I would add is that we as Latinos and Latinas have a responsibility as well. Where is it that we have maybe internalized some of that marginalization against us so we might be less confident or, or more risk averse because we've been hurt uh, through the biases? That's very real. So how do we not let that work against us? And how do we uh, rise above it? Where is it that maybe our culture in some ways has socialized this in a way that might make us uh, you know, humble in that humility is a great thing, but where is it that that humility may kind of hold us back from really calling attention to our accomplishments and our work, which is what corporate America expects. So we have to resolve some of these cultural dilemmas that we have. And uh, even as the organization deals with its own dilemmas about uh, Latino inclusion. Thank you. And that flows perfectly to my next question, or the next question, which is, in your opinion, what are the biggest cultural differences that might get, be getting in the way of Latinx talent to reach leadership in the highest echelons, as you gave an example of, in the, an example in the webinar, of the we being beneficial to corporate culture? Are there other examples of how Latinx-specific differences could be leveraged in the corporate sphere? Yeah, you know, when we do intercultural work and cross-cultural work and diversity and inclusion work, there is a premise that everybody tends to gravitate toward intuitively, but we have a hard time uh, executing it. And that is immediately people say, oh, diversity is a good thing. We need diversity of thought and experience and backgrounds, and it makes us more creative and there's more ideas and we're more innovative. And, and, and in theory, everybody embraces that, but in practice, as we get into a meeting, in, in terms of we get into uh, evaluating performance, we, we default to sort of a homogeneous, uh, unicultural understanding of what good performance looks like or good way of talking. So case in point, um, you know, I was just with a, a client um, and, um, uh, you know, 
which uh, transportation industry, and I was at a Latino summit, and we surfaced all these issues, and, and I had these stories. And this particular Latina from Mexico who had actually now moved to the U.S. Uh, as part of an expat assignment on the part of this organization, you know, she shared how um, the very things that she was known for as strengths as a professional in Mexico were the very things that she was getting performance feedback on. And for so she she has always been a very strong communicator in in, in Mexico, um, and so she you know her her eloquence and her passion and her ability to inspire people with how she presented ideas was seen as a positive. Um, her ability to speak directly, uh, you know, and clearly about uh, what she thinks and feels, which sort of a middle-class corporate uh, Latin American uh, environment is, is valued and respected, uh, was, was seen as a very good form of her communication. And, and her ability to express emotion and to bring her full self to work in terms of not only communicating ideas, but communicating the realities behind it was seen as an asset. So she's in the U.S., she's in the southern part of the U.S., and what kind of feedback is she getting when she's pulled aside? She's told that um, she is uh, too emotional, uh, she's told that she's too direct, and she's told that she, her communication is not clearly understood because of her accent. So think about this, the power of this, right? A, a successful professional, very effective, and the very things that she is praised for and has gotten accolades for and has helped her advance are the very same things that she's now getting a negative interpretation of. So that's just an, an, one story, one example of that. The other is, you know, in, in Latin American society and Hispanic American society, you know, there's machismo and there's sort of genderized views of how men and women should act. And that gets socialized in our culture and through mama and papa. And, and even to the point that there's an expression in Latin America shared with girls, right? As they're growing up and they're going through their formative time into young women and women. And it's like this, uh, calladita te ves más bonita. You know, if you keep quiet, you, you look the prettiest. And so there's a lot of problems with that statement in terms of, you know, the, the objectivization of, of, of women, first of all, kind of making uh, their appearance the most important thing, beyond, and then devaluing what they think and what they have to say, and then connecting the two, you know, just keep quiet and you, you look prettier. And, and that's what matters. And, and you know, as, as sexist and as machista as that is, it gets internalized. And so, you know, young women with ambition and who come to corporate and do the studies and all that, you know, they're caught between the, the what's needed to be ambitious and to step up and to actually not be calladita and to speak up and actually that's what corporate America rewards. And then that, that internalization, right, of how mama may have kind of expected you to behave. And so there is a conflict uh, for many Latinas about how do I manage this? I wanna be true to my culture, I want to be honoring of mama and what she expects of me and her teachings. And at the same time, in a different environment, I'm in a corporate American environment that might expect me to do differently. So you can see from my examples that it's about reciprocal mutual adaptation. Corporate America has to adjust and be more open to a different way of operating the part of Latinos that might be more expressive um, and let's say, quote unquote, more passionate. I think that white Americans are very passionate, but how passionate 
gets expressed and it just expressed in, in sometimes culturally in very different ways and, and get more open to that. And at the same time, we as Latinos and Latinas have to see where our cultural uh, values and also our interpretation of those values might have actually sent some messages that are, might be retro or just of another era or just, you know, reinforcing some machista things that really um, need to, to go by the wayside. Every culture has its attributes and its virtues. Every culture has its shadow side. And I think we've got to wrestle with that on both sides of the equation. Thank you. Yeah, and that just sounds awful, the, that phrase. Um, the, the, yes, there's, there's a lot to be broken down there. Um, how, can corporate, how can corporations address both organizational, structural, systemic, and human biases that negatively impact Latinos and then become inclusive and belonging? You know, um, let me add another example, right? Because I think um, in the previous questions, answers to my other questions, I gave some examples of systemic mm -hmm. uh, ways to be more inclusive. But, um, you know, I, uh, when you think about another cultural clash value, there's a communal um, disposition or preference of a lot of Latinos. And, and I'm always careful to talk about archetype versus stereotype. So archetype or general tendency of a group of people to behave a certain way and stereotype the assumption every member of the group behaves according to the generality. But the generality is real. It, it's sociologically and interculturally and anthropologically mappable. You know, you can really see the norms uh, that are more Latino and the norms that are more European American. And so it, it, if, if our norms as, as a Latino comunidad and gente uh, tends to be more about familia, um, grupo, the group and, and all that, and corporate America tends to be more individualistic, then this actually plays itself out in some of those uh, role portraits and some of those behavior-based interview uh, uh, questions. And I may have told the story um, in the, the main webinar, but it, it bears um, sort of re-looking at this. If, 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 if in the story that I told was about um, a behavioral-based interview, which is intended to mitigate bias, right? Don't tell me what you think, but tell me what you've done. And a communal person answers a question about, tell me the time you led a team of success. And, and the person says, what my colleagues did here, what we did, what she did, what he contributed. And an individualistic hiring manager and recruiter are, are, are hearing somebody and interpreting it as someone who didn't do anything, who rode the backs of everybody else we have a problem, right? So what does that mean? That means that we have to actually train people and they'll listen differently, train people to be aware that there is a difference between individualistic mindset and preference versus a communal one, and it's gonna express itself differently, and it's gonna interpret what is valuable contribution depending on which sense of community or individualism that you have, and to not misinterpret what the the, the we or the I means. Now, it is true that some candidate may have ridden the backs of everybody else and they were not, a, a, um, you know, able to take personal responsibility for the work. That's possible. You know, we want to distinguish that. But the problem is that too many Latinos and Latinas are being misinterpreted in their communal conversation because the tools themselves are geared toward an individualistic interpretation of people's performance. As an employee, what is the best way to bring up cultural differences to your senior leadership? 
this creates a conundrum for all of us who are Latinx um, in corporate America because, you know, you hear a webinar like this, you read things, um, you know, and you're like, wait a minute, I'm, I'm tired of assimilating. I'm tired of having my wings clipped. I'm tired of being coached on these things that are kind of about who I am. You know, I'm so tired of being saying I'm so passionate and being told that in a condescending, patronizing way or in a way that is sort of a developmental feedback. So here we are, right? And we're going to get charged up. I need to tell somebody, you know, so, but, well, but, you know, we, we're dealing with a reality. It says, well, will, will, be, I mis will I be understood? Will I be misunderstood? Are they ready to hear this? So my uh, consejo, my advice to, you know, mi gente is, you know, you want to be in an environment or in a group of, a, a group or a team or even with a manager that has some level of readiness to hear the message. So if you're in an organization that's not talking about diversity or is talking about diversity in very superficial ways um, or, in, 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 or an environment that hasn't really asked the question about who are the Latinos among us and what, who are they and what are they like and what do they want. If you're in an environment that hasn't even begun to ask those questions, then it is very difficult to sort of take a stance and, and start kind of speaking your truth. Um, so, uh, so I want to be cautious about my next advice, right? I, I want to acknowledge that the environment may not be ready, but if I move the needle forward and you're in an environment that doesn't have to be fully ready, but has begun to surface this, begun to ask itself these questions about unconscious biases, and, and you might, do you have an opportunity to say, hey, you know how you've been learning about unconscious biases in general, like toward women or, or people with disabilities? Well, can we talk about maybe some unconscious biases that might be at play with the Latino culture? Because I mean, it's, you know, thinking about and being exposed to some thinking about where, you know, my experience as a Latinx in this corporate environment might be clashing and might be misunderstood. So you're stretching, you're pressing, you're bringing forth some new content, but it's on the basis of maybe a shared experience, which in this case might be a journey and unconscious bias, which a lot of organizations have, have been going through. So that, that's very important. Now, one other scenario is, let's say that um, the environment is not ready uh, for that kind of more engaged building block kind of conversation, but you are, have just received performance feedback that you feel is unfair, that you feel is a misunderstanding. You know, like the, the Mexican uh, colleague that I told about for this transportation company, where now what is at stake is your own performance review, your own performance rating. And, and so you have to risk uh, because now you're already at risk because of a bad performance rating. And you have to say, wait a minute, I, I, I want to really have a, a larger conversation about this. Now we have to be humble and we have to be self-aware enough that there might be some legitimate performance gap feedback within that, but we want to be able to unpack that with our manager and say, listen, I, I hear X, Y, and Z. I, I, I need to work on that. I get it. But this other stuff that you bring up, that did not feel right to me. That did not feel good. I felt that I was judged because of my Latinicity and, and, and misinterpreted. So let, can we talk about that as well? Great advice. Now, um, so where where do Latinos fit in cor in current corporate America? Is basically if they want to stay authentic. 
Oh, yeah, okay. Well, first of all, I think I hear two parts of this. Where do we fit? And unfortunately, we're still invisible. And this has to change. And the way it's going to change is by us actually speaking up more, showing up more, declaring our ambition more, and, and really um, uh, drawing the line in terms of just not saying, well, I'm not, I, I, I know I got to figure out the corporate ropes about how I get it wrong. I know I got to adapt to certain ways of doing things. Great. I get it. But it, it just can't be 100% if this organization is, is being authentic about it, wanting diversity and inclusion. Uh, it just can't ask for my diversity and then tell me to behave like everybody else, right? And hold me accountable to yeah. that, that, that mainstream behavior. So let's have a conversation about that. But we are invisible and the role of employee resource groups or business resource groups is paramount. And these business groups have to become uh, it's many times hard to speak as an individual when we're isolated and we're only Latino in a particular uh, business unit or team. But when the, the, the ERG and the BRG is actually a power um, strategy, right? To say, let's bring the collective voices of all these scattered Latinos out there and Latinas and, and let's create a collective voice and let's create a forum where we can invite leaders and we can invite managers so they can hear from us you know, not only the affirming things about how we value the company and we want to grow within the company, but also they can hear collectively some of our struggles. That it's not just an aberration. It's not just this particular individual. It's not just a, a, what they want to consider a bad apple or an outlier, but it's like, wow, what, what is it about a group of Latinx that kind of, no matter what, they kind of similar have similar stories about uh, 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 being pressured into assimilation that really uh, devalues uh, their particular contributions. So where are we in corporate America? We're invisible. And, and what do we need to do? We need to become un, un, you know, visible. And some of it is up to us, right? We, we have to, uh, many times when we assimilate, we contribute to that invisibility, right? We, hide, we, we allow the, the assimilationists corporate pressures to go, okay, I'll hide that part of me. And we uh, add to the invisibility. So we have to sort of say, nope, I'm not going to do that. Um, and, and so that's the things that we have to do for ourselves. And, um, and I think, you know, uh, I, I think about the clients that I've been to recently, and they've had these Latino summits. And the Latino summits weren't just a keynote where uh, uh, there's inspirational speaker that, that brings some things forth, but we did workshops and we did strategic sessions about where is it that there are gaps in the Latino presence, where is it that Latinos can be more pre, um, less invisible, uh, you know, what is it that Latinos in this organization want, and making sure there's business leaders and HR leaders and managers in the room so we can have an engaged conversation that then leads not only to the airing of here are the problems or here are the challenges or here's the pain, that's part of it, but then that are problem solving sessions to say, and therefore as Latinos, Latinas, Latinx, this is what we, we recommend, or here's what we want to see, or here's what we want to partner with the system to be able to accelerate the advancement of Latin, uh, Latinx. And we find that there's a greater number of corporations that want to do that, but just don't know what to do. And, and that's what we need to engage in these more strategic conversations that are problem solving and forward looking. Thank you. Um, uh, Peruvian author Maria Arana mentions that we are not Latinos or Hispanics until we move to the U.S. Otherwise, we are from our country of origin. Can, could you give your view on that? 
Yeah, it's always nice to quote a proving author, <laughs> another proving author. So that's great. Yes, your uh, countrywoman. <laughs> yeah, and, and I love her writing, and her writing is is uh, I can resonate a lot with it because she talks about this bicultural reality, right? And and she's right that you know when you are in Latin America, you don't you know if you're middle class professional, um, you you are part of you're not a minority um, you in terms of the work environment and and so there's the issues of being underrepresented or the issues of being misunderstood culturally all these things that we've been talking about well pretty much um, for many uh, and I'm going to give you an exception in Latin America but for many um, this is um, you know you're kind of efficient in water and then you come to the US and then you're a fish out of water and that's when you stand out and because you are literally in the majority, in the minority, they're not others like you, they're very few, and the culture norms are different. So she's right that many Latin Americans who are not even used to being in the minority suddenly at all, have a very confusing experience when they come, even especially um, when you stay within the same corporation, right? They just happen to be moving from Peru or from Brazil up to the US. So you go, oh, I know the corporate culture, but suddenly, uh, it feels different because you're the only only one. Now, having said all that, I, I do want to identify a couple important caveats. That in Latin America, we have our own issues of, of classism and even racism. And many times as Latin Americans, we have a hard time uh, in, uh, engaging with the word racism and a little more comfort with the word classism. But we, if you look at classism, um, lo and behold, um, you know, the darker skin you are, the, the, the lower you are in the economic, uh, uh, you know, ladder. So there is some correlation here. But as the emerging economies of Latin America have been generating millions of new middle class from the lower income uh, populations that tend to be indigenous, tend to be Afro, you know, Brazilian or Afro-Peruvian or Afro-Colombian, et cetera, then uh, now you have a, a, an increased uh, presence of racially different um, or you know darker skinned uh, or more indigenous um, uh, middle class professionals entering that and now Latin America is starting to wrestle with its own forms of diversity and, and being confronted with its own uh, particular conscious or unconscious biases so it, her description uh, was, was sort of about more of a more European American uh, uh, Latin American middle-class experience, uh, but that's starting to slowly change, and now we're starting to see more diversity here. So there are plenty of middle-class professionals now in Latin America who are in the minority. So they kind of break this um, assumption that I just described was real, mm -hmm. but that's starting to change, and I just want to acknowledge that as well. Great. Next question is, when doing translations, which versions of Spanish should be used for U.S. audiences, speaking of language and accents. Yeah, that's a very tricky one. And, um, and you know, as, as the audience will know, but just to be explicit, um, it, 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 we do share uh, throughout most of the continent language, Spanish and we understand each other. Uh, but there are terminologies that are different than even slang that can be very offensive in one country and mean nothing offensive in another. So 
you know, when it comes to translation, um, there's a couple things. I, there's not any one country I would say, oh, make sure you use, um, you know, more the Mexican Spanish or the Colombian Spanish. Yeah, I don't think there's a rule there. But you have to think about your audience because even within the U.S., we have concentrations of, um, you know, more Mexicans and, and the Southwest and of the United States. And then you have the Cubans more in the Miami area and the other Puerto Ricans in the New York area. So when you say what Spanish did you use? Well, it, it, are you doing a national campaign or national materials or is it more regional? And so depending on your answer, well, if it's more regional, then you're more likely to use maybe the Spanish or the, where the, there's a particular dominant uh, Latin group and that's, that would be fine. But if you're doing something national, you, you know, I, I, I've worked on uh, translating a lot of stuff. Um, I've worked with translators when the volume of work, like with Authentico, I, I, I didn't have the time and energy to translate Roberts in my book. So we, we actually hired somebody to do it. And, and it was an interesting process because we had um, somebody from Puerto Rico, somebody from Mexico, somebody from Venezuela who played different roles in the translation because somebody had to do the literal translation. Somebody had to then, uh, you know, kind of verify the translation. And then somebody else had to prove the translation. And they were from different countries. And so they kept, at, at one level, changing each other's way of saying things and we had to reconcile that, but I think it was part of the process. I don't think anybody was right or wrong, but they were raising legitimate things and we had to keep thinking, well, which way are we gonna tip? And, uh, and trying to find the language or the vocabulary that would be most understood or most universally accepted and with a pan-Latin environment. And, and but it, it, my bottom line answer is, it, there's no one country vocabulary or even way of speaking from a syntax perspective, that I would say that's the, the measure. I think you have to create sort of a diversity, if you will, to get to the right answer given your regional or national goals and your literature. Oh, thank you. Um, uh, this, uh, I, the next question, I identify as Hispanic, non-Spanish speaking. My husband is Caucasian. I've been asked whether our daughter whether or not my daughter, very light-skinned, blue-eyed, light hair, will identify as Hispanic or Caucasian. In the beginning, I was very caught off guard by the question, somewhat offended, because I automatically assumed she would identify as Hispanic, and, other was, and others would as well. But after being asked a few times, I started to question myself. Any insights on how to navigate the situation? Yeah, Mira, um, <laughs> this issue of identity, identidad, has to do with authenticity, with authenticity. And we have to uh, allow for the fact that while there's DNA involved in here, so, you know, 23andMe, you know, genetic testing tells people all kinds of things about, you know, they have Irish blood or they have African blood or they have, you know, Peruvian ancestry, okay, great. But it, it, when people say it's in my blood, right? I, I'm a good dancer because I'm, it's my blood or I'm passionate because it's my blood or whatever. Well, uh, you know, it being in our blood it, it is not determinant. Uh, it might, it's gonna be determinant of how we look, but we have choices to make about how we want to identify and express ourselves. So in the end, for the, 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 the questioner, it's not for you to decide what the right answer is. It's for your daughter to decide. 
you know, what is her sense of identity? You know, she has had this exposure to mom and dad, different cultures, the what, however way it's played out in your household, in terms of language spoken or food eaten or ways of expressing. And along the way, your daughter is going to have made conscious or subconscious decisions to tip one way or another or to fuse or to self-identify one group or another, or even to have a bicultural identity. It's, it's unpredictable. Even children you know, like siblings, uh, all, you know, in the same exact family will often make very different decisions or subtles, subtleties in, in, in how they choose to reconcile these cultural differences. So in the end, we always say it's a journey that is individual. We encourage people to go on the journey, to not do things by default, to not do things without self-awareness, and to recognize that whether they're doing it consciously or not, that they are making choices about identity. And many times when you don't make a conscious choice uh, and kind of work your way through it, you, you end up a little bit confused or a little bit uncertain or you, you don't know how to answer the question yourself. And, and in, in our work, Robert's and my work in the book, uh, we're about ask the question, go on the journey. There's no right answer, but the, the answer is within you. And it may not be overnight. It might not be readily apparent but do the work and figure out who am I as a Latina, as a Latino, as a Latinx, and what does it show up for me in my personal and professional life? And then that's the process. Thank you for that. Um, this next question, uh, I think ties both of these together. Uh, could you share how you improved your accent? What is your view on how to move up in corporate America for people with stronger accents? I have noticed it is a big clash being in corporate America. Yeah, this is a, a, a really um, a touchy and difficult question to answer. And it actually ties into this whole issue of identity and the choices that you make. And then letting that process sort of determine kind of what is the best answer in terms of uh, accented English, if, if that is an issue. So uh, a few things. Um, and I'll talk about my experience, but I want to make it a little broader here. Um, when we work with clients on, and, you know, and individuals, um, you know, corporations as well as individuals about accent, our point of view is, look, everybody has an accent. Even the native speakers of English or Spanish or French have an accent that's regional and all that. So let's just kind of put this in context here. Um, and, uh, and by the way, even Indians uh, who are native English, many of them who are native English speakers, well, they have an accent that people often uh, want to correct, but they're native speakers. So what is a native speaker, right? And, uh, and a Mexican American who grew up in the Southwest, second, third generation, that might be a particular way of speaking and they're a native English speaker. So let's just put that on the table. Um, second is we, when we think about accent, we think about, we, we tend to put it more uh, about effective communication. If the accent is uh, particular heavy to the point that the people around them are really not able to easily understand that person and if we discern that it's not because the listeners are being prejudiced or resistant and just don't want to tune in and hear, 
but then there's a couple options in front of the situation. And when I talk about the resistance, it, it, we all, it's proven that our brains can tune in and, and, and the frequency, if you will, to whatever, to many of the actions that we hear and our ears, especially with a coworker that we're going to work with on a regular basis or a friend, our ears will tune in. And maybe at the beginning, we may have had a hard time understanding them, but our ears tune in and we're able to understand them just right and just fine. So, so we, we definitely want to work on, is our prejudice involved in this accented communication on the part of the listener? If, if yes, then that's a different kind of issue. You got to kind of get over it. Um, is it a matter of just learning to tune your ear and getting used to it? Sure, and, and we actually kind of encourage that. But the third scenario is also true, where the accent really is so heavy uh, that, the, that no matter what, the communication is hurting the person, right? That it's it, so we put it in more in terms of presentation and communication skills, and there's where we encourage some accent reduction. Now, not accent elimination, but accent reduction. And for a couple reasons. One, physiologically, it can be very difficult to reduce the accent. Sociologically, it's, it might, it's sort of an, an imperialistic imposition to ask for a, a complete accent reduction. And from an identity perspective, th 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 for many people, their accent is a form of cultural identity and pride, and they don't want to get rid of it. But perhaps just reducing it somewhat kind of might hit the, the sweet spot of maintain my identity, I'm not assimilating, but I'm more clearly understood, which is what I want to do and I don't want to get in the way, right? So now the question was about the choice I made. When I came to US, I had in college, um, I had a very heavy accent when I spoke English and I noticed, you know, the, the discrimination that came with it and the assumptions that happen when people think you're not as smart, or you're not as articulate, or they just make all kinds of really prejudicial assumptions to that. And for me, I just got so tired of those assumptions when I had, what I felt I had many other things to offer. So I, I chose to work on it. Now I had a benefit, you heard my story in the main webinar, but I had a Peruvian dad, but an American mom. And so I kind of had kind of a language tape in, in my brain, which was how my mom talked. And so the more I was in the U.S., the more I could hear my accented English as I spoke. I could hear it now because I'm in an English-speaking environment. And I would, you know, catch a word that was very heavily accent. And I would silently to myself as I was walking away from the conversation, repeat it like 10 times to myself, sort of comparing it to how my mom would have said it. And I tend to work myself through the American English vocabulary that way over, you know, you know, several years uh, as I worked through it. So that's, that was a choice I made. Um, and, um, and, uh, and that's one of the reasons I was able to make it. And, and that was part of my bicultural um, assets, if you will, that allowed me to dig into something that I didn't know was there, but I could leverage it because of that. Uh, thank you for sharing your, um, your personal story. Um, next question is, I've seen a bigger sense of community amongst the African-American community than our Hispanic slash Latinx community amongst senior leadership in my organization. What recommendations do you have as how we can create something similar amongst our Hispanic slash Latinx senior leadership? Yeah, you know, in our book, uh, Robert and I have a whole chapter uh, comparing uh, the, the sense of Latin community 
and Latin power uh, to the African American community and African American power. And, uh, you know, I'll just give you a brief answer here, but the book has a full chapter here. We go historically and sociologically and even spiritually in terms of religious influences about why the black community has been able, in the US, been able to emerge as a much more cohesive, uh, less fragmented uh, community than the Latino one. Um, and with, because of the less fragmentation, they've actually been able to have more power uh, because they can present themselves at, you know, kind of uh, the power of numbers and the power of sort of a more unified message as opposed to uh, kind of how we sub-optimize our numbers because we tend to fragment ourselves across 27 different nationalities and being English or Spanish or Spanish dominant or first, second, third, fourth generation. And even among racial lines, you know, we have discrimination within our own Latino culture toward those who are Afro-Latino or Asian-Latino. So we're more fragmented and, uh, and it hurts us. And the black community um, has been able to uh, use the, the unifying historical experience. Uh, they, you know, like slavery was a historical uniform, horrific experience, but it was a unifying one. And the Latino experience has been many different kinds of stories. Uh, and so just from the, from the genesis, there's just a less unified experience within the U.S. And then the role of the spiritual and, and church and faith for the black community that helps them survive uh, slavery and then catapult them toward uh, sort of independence uh, against slavery. And then even behind the civil rights, you see the role of uh, uh, spirituality and faith in the church play a very unifying role there. And while spirituality is very important to Latin Americans, it just hasn't it actually, if, if church was uh, a liberating experience for uh, blacks, even though it was used against them, it, they used it, they flipped it, right? And used it as a, a source of faith. In, 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 for, in Latin America, you know, the Catholic church through the conquistadores was a form of massive oppression. And it did, it, we did not even historically uh, leverage it for liberation. And, you know, in, in the story of Moses and uh, the, getting to promise in the same way the African-American community at its genesis. So if you start there, then you look at there's more cohesiveness spiritually, there's more cohesive educationally with historically black colleges and universities. We have the, um, you know, Hispanic serving institutions, but they don't have the same uh, sense of cohesion and, and um, influence in the culture as the HBCUs. And then you have out of that intelligentsia that is African-American, you have political leaders that are African-American. It all kind of leads in a particular direction. And our fragmentation means that we, we, don't, we haven't generated the same kind of intelligentsia in the U.S. or political leaders in you know, sort of critical numbers um, or literature in the same kind of way. I mean, I'm not talking about Latin America. I'm talking about Hispanic America as an African-American. So very different realities that then play out in corporate America. And so, so that uh, ELC, the Executive Leadership Council, which is you know, black executives, one or two levels away from CEO, very powerful, very influential. Uh, and even though we have comparable Latin organizations, we just are one notch below in terms of power influence compared to the black one. So we have to, I think for us, our work is to undo our fragmentation to focus more on what we have in common and some of the common challenges that we face in today's sociedad 
and some of the hostilidad that we're facing in current uh, uh, America, and, and, and really put a lot of our Latino differences aside and, and really become much more unified. And I think we have a lot to learn from the black community in that respect. Thank you again, Andreas. And this is the final question, but I think it ties, it ties very well into the, into the previous question. And I think you answered it a little bit already, but how can we unite Latinos from so many different cultures and overcome our own unconscious biases against each other to succeed? Yeah, let me pull a few strands together. I really believe that, um, first of all, in employee resource groups and business resource group, which is the place that where Latinos come together in corporate America, we need to acknowledge the vast diversity of what it means to be Latino, Latina, Latinx. We need to recognize that they're Latin Americans that immigrated here as adults. We have to recognize that they're Hispanic Americans that are now fourth generation in the United States. Uh, we have to recognize our, you know, our racial ethnic diversity, our generational diversity, our language dominance diversity, and call it out and name it. And even the intersectionality of all these different things, you know, the, the gay Latino, the lesbian Latina, the, the veteran Latino, the, the, the Latino with disabilities, so really, we have to name it. And we have to say, this is us, right? This is the totality of the Latino experience. And it's varied, and it's beautiful, and it's complex, and it's multidimensional, and it's not any one thing. So. Number one, recognize that vast diversity. Number two, find ourselves as individuals within that vast diversity. ¿Quién soy yo? You know, ¿Cómo me identifico? Who am I? How do I identify? What, what is me in that? And then as we do that, share back with each other. Say, look, this is who I am. Who are you? And we have to do that work of inclusion within our own uh, community. And, and as we do that, two things will happen. One, we will actually discover that we do have a lot of diversity in the Latino experience, even in the choices that we make about what Latino self-identification means and self-identity means. And we will still find that despite those differences, we still have a lot in common. Um, and there is such a thing as a Latinx or Latino Latina umbrella that allows us to come together and there be cohesion about our experience. You know, the, the culture clash that, you know, has been the theme of this webinar and this bonus track. And also, you know, the hostility that Latinos are facing in this country right now, they, the, the people directing the hostility are not making these fine distinctions between, you know, this nationality and that, or whether you're Spanish or English dominant. They're just lumping all Latinos under sort of a, a xenophobic, uh, hostile um, mindset and attitude that threatens all of us. So we better recognize that and see that any superiority or any, I'm not like that Latino, that Latina, well, you know what, in some ways we're in the same boat of, of threat and we have to find each other. That's not sort of on the survival side, but on the thrival side, you know, if we have 16 million Latinos, our presence is still not felt in politics, in economics, in uh, you know, venture capitalist investments, you know, in advancement, in development programs, in high potential programs. And the only way we're going to start really making our numbers be felt is that we add, actually add up our numbers as opposed to divide our numbers. And that's really what we have to get past. And there's a lot of diversity, a lot of richness that we can celebrate and embrace in our differences and at the same time find a unifying thing. Uh, and, and that's really a clarion call for us to really 
be part of our advancement as the people that we are, la gente, and stop being invisible. And the way to be invisible is to actually show what's underneath the cloak. And what's underneath the cloak is vast numbers uh, of very ambitious uh, citizens and immigrants who have been contributing and are ready to contribute even more to the fullness of our ability. Muchas gracias, Andreas. I cannot think of a better message or better way to end this interview. Um, thank you again so much for taking your time to do this interview. I know with us, like I know we at the forum and our listeners are so gracious for your time and your knowledge. Um, for our listeners, this podcast, along with the um, the original recording of of Andreas's webinar will be posted onto the web onto our website forumworkplaceinclusion.org um, backslash webinars backslash culture dash slash or culture dash clash and also on our podcast page which is just forumworkplaceinclusion.org backslash podcast you can sub subscribe or listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts Spotify Stitcher and Anchor. Um, and like, and we also on the page, we also, uh, the page with the original recording of the webinar, we also have excerpts um, and handouts that Andreas has shared with us from his book, Authentico, and also from the Latin Executive Manifesto. So please visit those pages to, um, to view those as well as listen to this recording and the recording of the original podcast. Thank you again, Andreas. Mi placer. Uh, <laughs> Adelante, mi gente. Forward. Yes, <laughs> see, um, unfortunately I took French, so my Spanish isn't great. Um, but thank you so much and, and thank you all for listening. We look forward to having you join us for future podcasts. Thank you again for listening to the Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get updates and the latest episodes. Also, tell us what you think by reviewing our podcast. We'd love to hear your feedback. For more information, visit us at forumworkplaceinclusion.org or search Workplace Forum on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Thank you very much and have a great day. The Forum and Workplace Inclusion podcast is recorded at Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. One of the most diverse private colleges in the Midwest, Augsburg University offers more than 50 undergraduate majors and nine graduate degrees to 3,400 students of diverse backgrounds at its campus in the vibrant center of the Twin Cities and nearby Rochester, Minnesota location. Augsburg educates students to be informed citizens, thoughtful stewards, critical thinkers, and responsible leaders. And Augsburg education is defined by excellence in the liberal arts and professional studies, guided by the faith and values of the Lutheran Church, and shaped by its urban and global settings. Learn more at augsburg.edu.